You are now tuned in to the Project 365 Experience. We are here. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. I am your host, Coach O, and we have a really good show for you guys. Coach Manelik Fernandez is going to join us. Um, he is by far one of my favorite people on the face of this earth. He um, brings a lot to me personally because he's somebody that helps me grow in the game of basketball. He challenges my ideas. He teaches me some new stuff. So um, we're going to talk about his first year um, at Terra Prep. He started, um, he co-founded a prep school, and we're going to talk about, you know, the technical, tactical of um, how his first year. We're also going to dive into a uh, force middle defense, which I know is non is not conventional because a lot of people are taught to force to the sidelines. But we dive in with Menelik about um, what are the technical points that we have to have if it's something that coaches that are listening to the podcast would like to be able to apply into uh, their teaching. Now, disclaimer. This is a um, basketball conversation that is very high level in terms of knowledge. Um, I'm very excited about it. I'm excited for you guys to be able to learn. If there's any terms or anything that you guys um, do not understand, please don't hesitate to uh, DM me on any of our social medias. Uh, I'm excited. Uh, I had a really nice time talking with Coach Menelik. So without any further ado, Let's dive into our podcast with Menelik Fernandez. Very, very excited to have a good friend of mine, somebody that keeps pushing me um, to critically think the game, somebody that I've gotten to know over the years, uh, Menelik Fernandez, um, York assistant for three years, Halton head coach for one year uh Fleming you got the chance to be the interim and be the lead assistant for a period of two years right uh Lawrence Park you were two for two years you were the head coach and also the founder of Toronto Terror and Terror Prep which is going into the second year of uh running my friend Malik Fernandez how you doing I'm great man thanks for having me on it's a real pleasure to be here you know uh the people won't know that we, you know, we shoot the shit back and forth all the time via text. And whenever we see each other, we're always giving each other little tidbits. But it's always a pleasure to have friends in and around the game that uh, want to get better, you know, want to uh, challenge me and make me think about things differently. And, uh, you know, don't comment on how big the hair has gotten, or, <laughs> uh, you know, any of that kind of stuff. But no, it's uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to sit down with you. And uh, I'm happy to finally be able to get on your show, man. Finally, you know, and you know, what's funny, you're kind of like, I would say one of the pioneers in Canada, because you do have a couple of series, you have your series, right, Run It Back, which was one of the most insightful things that I got the chance to be a part of during the pandemic. Can you just elaborate, like, how did that start back? The Run It Back series on YouTube. Um, well, appreciate you saying that. It's actually, I just looked at this this week. It's actually 11 months since I've done one. And I've been very seriously thinking about starting it back up. But it became uh, really difficult when the pandemic ended, I guess, or closed down or slowed down, whatever, to consistently get guests on. Like, you know, what was 
a way of life during the pandemic where we were mm-hmm. all on every day trying to get better kind of gave way for, well, I got to get in the gym. I've got all these athletes. So, I mean, it was understandable, but it's too long now because for me, it was the best thing that had happened in my life. So to answer your question and go back, uh, we were really restricted in Canada. Uh, I was really sad, you know, depressed, whatever you want to say, because basketball is what brings me joy. I, uh, I really enjoy it. Uh, it's definitely something that monopolizes my time. Uh, and it's something that, you know, I'm, I'm always looking at ways to get better at. So couldn't get in a gym, couldn't play outside, uh, you know, just silly restrictions all over the place. And I, uh, I was a member of the rising coaches community, uh, shout out to Adam, uh, and, you know, just kind of decided, all right, well, let me fumble through a podcast and see if I can do this. It's sort of the way that everybody's doing stuff. And it's funny because if you watch it, I recorded 101 shows over two years, uh, one a week for two years. And the first five or six are pretty bad, to be quite honest, really. It's like, it's just me trying to come up with something that works. And then I was very fortunate to, uh, I phoned up Charles Dupre-Bray, who at the time was an assistant with the Raptors. Yep, with the Raptors. Yeah. And uh, Charles and I only had a loose relationship, but I knew that his name and his title would really help bring in some popularity to the show. Uh, and it would just be kind of a, like a cool idea to do. And the format changes dramatically in the sixth episode when I do it with him, where it's like, uh, we, we go 45 minutes on, like, how do you prepare for a game? And then 45 minutes talking about, like, things that happened in the game. So I'd actually pull film from the game and question these coaches, like, well, why are you running this set here? What are you trying to attack? Who are you going at? What's what's the strength you're looking for? All those kinds of things that when you're, you know, sort of a junior coach, you really want to ask these senior coaches, like, why? What are you What are you thinking here? What do I not see? And to his credit, he was incredible and stayed on afterwards. And it kind of became a thing that just took off. So uh, because my first guest was Charles Duberbrit, gave it a, a little bit of clout, I suppose you could say, where I felt I could reach out to some more senior level coaches. And, I, you know, I mean, the names that are on there, you know, Cody Toppert, Roe Russell is obviously a, a paramount name in Canada. Larry Blunt, uh, you know, um, geez, it just goes on and on and on. Lamar Barrett, Trey Montgomery, uh, Cabral Huff. I mean, these are guys from the NBA all the way down to high school from all around the world. Kostas uh, Kologaropoulos, who is from Greece. He's a pro coach. Uh, shout out Max Nelaton, who just became the youngest head coach in France. He did my show. Uh you know, just it just was an incredible experience. I got to literally sit there, ask some questions, hang back, and listen to brilliant coaches talk about why they do what they do. And I mean, it's terribly niche. I know this is a long answer. I'm sorry, I'm long winded. It's terrible, <laughs> but I, I I really love the experience. It's so it's so funny because now looking back at where we started from in the pandemic. And then, you know, we were, everybody was kind of forced to either reevaluate or change certain ways, that, certain things that they had to do, right? And I remember myself just really starting to fall in love with watching film, watching games and that kind of stuff. 
during the pandemic because that is all I could do, right? Yep, that's really what it was, right? Necessity. Yeah, so let me ask you this. What is the biggest takeaway that you get? Like now we're almost three and a half, four years removed. What is the biggest takeaway that you would take from, um, you know, going through that? Um, that I was arrogant and brash and that I, I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I did and that the best course of action is to realize that you know nothing and ask questions and try and get better. It, mm-hmm. I, it's really what it came down to. I'm, I'm at, um, you know, I'm going to shout out a group of guys that we call ourselves the bullies, but I, I met the bullies during uh, the pandemic uh, pretty much originally through Lamar Barrett, who's an NBA scout who quickly became uh, like a mentor to me. Um, but the whole group of gentlemen, there's about 18 of us uh, that, you know, they're, they're gentlemen that we can reach out and help each other with life situations talk about players, talk about basketball. Every week we get on a zoom for three and a half years, every Saturday or sorry, every Sunday and almost every Wednesday were there, you know, complaining about filling each other in on updates, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. But it goes back to what I said. We, we, we don't know nearly as much as we think we do and we're not challenging ourselves enough. And uh, we, we need to be better at helping each other out, especially in Canada basketball. Absolutely. Just the giving, right? Like, I kind of find like, um, there's kind of like this idea that there's secrets. Like everybody has the secret sauce that's going to lead to them winning a game and nobody really wants to share, right? Bro, get out of here. Like, you, <laughs> you got five players that are six seven with 40 inch vertical leaps. I got five guys that are five ten. There's no secret sauce here. You're probably mm-hmm. going to win that game. And <laughs> once you put it on film, I think I'm good enough now at this point in my career that I can figure it out. Like, oh, they're tagging from the opposite side. No big deal. Or it's a high tag. Or mm-hmm. it's a band tag. Or they're three-way switching or whatever it is. Now, I know not everybody can do that. But, like, this secretness that you're talking about, it drives me insane. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I understand that me and a certain coach might not be friendly enough that he's willing to open up the bag of tricks and give me everything. I get it. No problem. But at the same time, if I'm like, I'm asking a fairly simple question, like, Hey man, why are you going over on that instead of under? I'm not attacking you. I'm genuinely curious. Why are you doing that? Like, what do you see that I don't? Maybe I could start thinking in a different way. And this from my, it's another really big take from the COVID era. This is a real problem we have in Canada compared to the United States. Almost every coach in the United States is like, here's my playbook. I don't care. Take the Mm -hmm. whole thing, right? Like I stole it from somebody. They stole it from somebody. I didn't invent flex, right? Like I didn't invent Princeton. It's, It's like, you know, there's some little wrinkles that I can throw in that make it work for my players. But this is the basis of it. And this is what I'm trying to do. At the end of the day, players win. And coaches lose. Get out of your own way. It's, I love what you're saying because, like, even for me, like, you know, there's a couple things that I that I've really grown from from, um, you know, in the pandemic and learning about all these sets and everything, learning sets, learning actions, learning different ball screen coverages and that kind of stuff. You know, as much as possible, when you learn all that strategy, 
there's a real human um, element to the game. Whether a coach can get the buy-in of his players, whether certain players get along with each other, whether they communicate, whether they there's a real human aspect that you having all the plays and the X's and O's doesn't give you the hedge, doesn't give you the well, advantage. Well, the, the cliche is right. It's uh, it's not the X's and O's, it's the Jimmy's and Joe's, so to speak, or whatever. <laughs> but like the the thing is to me is I think that if you're gonna be a good coach, you have to have both. You, like so mm-hmm. you have to mm-hmm. recognize what you're not good at and what you are good at, and then you have to seek people who compliment you well. So I'm going to give a big shout out to Cameron Moore, who is the gentleman who started terror prep with me. He was a former player of mine on Toronto terror years ago and would have played for me at Fleming had I uh, continued to be the head coach there. But basically he and I, you know, we worked two full summers through COVID just trying to get him better, really getting his shots up, getting his fitness out there. Uh, and, and he was great. He made huge you know, leaps and bounds, but it looked like, all right, this isn't going to work out. So he jumped on, staff with me so to speak and started terror prep and part of the reason like I'm I'm an older guy I'm in my 40s Cam is 21 turning 22 so a lot of people look at us and they're like well that's a really odd pairing for the the people that are leading this and I'm like well we complement each other well because in certain things that I'm soft on he's hard and on certain things that he's soft on I'm hard and we both understand the value of what we bring to the table uh, and how it's different and how it's similar. And we work well together so far, you know, knock on wood, who knows long-term or whatever, but like right now it seems to work very well where it, you know, it's exactly what you're saying. Like I'm not a good motivator. I never have been. And it's, I was a point guard. And when I played, it was really this dude, get off the floor. You're not trying. That's my motivation your shit get out of here part of my language you know like you're, you're just really yeah. not bringing what you're supposed to be bringing i don't understand at all and i don't want to understand if i'm paraphrasing kobe i don't want to understand people who need external motivation you're playing a game and it's a fun game and if you're good at it you shouldn't need somebody else to cattle prod you to go mm-hmm. so i have other coaches that are good at motivation Mm-hmm. I think I'm pretty good at X's and O's. I'm not always the best recruiter. So I have other coaches that are like, this dude will do what it is that we need in those sets, which is awesome because they understand how what I do works well with what they do and we put it together. Mm-hmm. So, so it's almost like you need to hire like self-awareness, be aware of what you are. Right. And like when building a staff, you almost like got to hire or get people that kind of like are good at the things that you're not good at. And it's about being able to have that understanding that, hey, I'm not good as this. Yeah. I need to get better at this part. Yeah. Or I need to hire somebody specific for this. So I I have two quick answers. Yeah. Yep. Hit me. Is is Mm -hmm. the self-awareness is a major part. Right. There's so many people I've been on staffs where guys are like, I don't want a yes, man. But then you challenge them on something and they're like, dude, there's the door. And it's like. You literally said you don't want somebody <laughs> who's just going to pat you on the back. Like, dude, I'm sorry, oh, no. that doesn't work in that scenario. Here's why. But then the, the second element of this, like I'm a parent and I teach this to my daughter all the time. You need to seek out people in life that you don't agree with. You need to. 
if everyone around you thinks exactly the same as you and they're a bird just chirping back what you're saying, you're in an echo chamber, you're never going to be challenged, and you've already achieved your ceiling. That's it. It's over. You're as smart as you're ever going to be. People mm. who you can disagree with and still have a conversation with are paramount to your development in life. There's a way to disagree. There's a time to disagree. There's language to use to disagree. But the people who understand those things are only going to make you better. And if you are afraid of that, don't coach. Because first of all, this is already kind of a bummy profession in terms of what they pay and the hours and all that kind of stuff or whatever. (laughs) And the investment, yeah. Exactly. But at the end of the day, you're never going to get better and you're never going to help anybody else develop. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. So... How has how has it been? Like you transition from the pandemic, you go into terror prep, you know, you you guys start that. Like now you got all these ideas, and now it's about the execution. How does all of that kind of like and you're I, smiling? I think, <laughs> I think I had a bit of an advantage in that obviously I had been coaching for a long time and that I had run an AAU program before. So I was not unfamiliar with the intricacies of traveling with younger people right like I know you know I need permission forms for this or this kid needs a visa and that one does it like I I've been through a lot of that so there was some experience there to tap into I knew you know tournament organizers had pretty good connections uh through especially through COVID and the show mm-hmm. able to find some pretty good games and, and good competition uh But it it was challenging at first because the idea was basically this. This is our selling pitch, our principle. We don't want to play in Canada at all. We don't want to play in any leagues at all. We want to run a completely independent schedule. And we want to get the best competition we can possibly get. So you say that, and that sounds awesome. Until now you're like, this world's pretty big. Who's going to play me? When? Where? How am I getting there? All those kinds of things, right? Like, what what do the logistics actually look like? So, you know, that first month was a lot of number crunching and figuring stuff out. And we figured out that the best thing that we could possibly do was buy a van. Mm-hmm. And I was in the process of buying a car. And I don't make a lot of money on paper. So it was it was tricky getting that done. But we managed to pull through and get it done. And that was a game changer for us. So we were able to get to quite a bit more stuff. We put on almost 70,000 kilometers in the first eight months, which is more than once around the world. We traveled 14 different times for the regular, the prep season. We've been away, I think, three or four times for AAU currently. And uh, I just, it was, it was a real game changer for us to be able to get the van and to be able to get out on the road and, Slowly, you see, just as you would suspect, when you show up more and more places, your network continues to grow. People invite you to other things. And, uh, you know, kudos to the guys that I had. Most guys were completely willing to travel on a drop of a hat. And I think we had a really good first season. I really do. Yeah. And uh, you were just telling me about your schedule. You go to Vegas. Driving to Vegas is insane, by the way. So we're at, we're actually planning on doing this again for July. <laughs> it's currently May right now. And we're looking at the numbers and I'm like, damn, man. So I, I actually drove down to Florida and then over to Vegas and then back. So that's the longest trip I've, I've ever done as a driver. 
And uh, it was intense to say the least. Like I went to Florida four times during this prep season. That trip is becoming second nature. Ironically, 2000 kilometers, no problem. Let's go. But then when you're, yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. So we were going from DME to the Tarkanian, which is in Las Vegas and DME is in Daytona beach. And when we cut across the country, we stopped in New Orleans, we stopped in Albuquerque, and we stopped in Dallas. So it was, you know, it was a full week in between the two with three stops. And, you know, the kids got to see Bourbon Street. The kids got to see uh, the house of from um, from Breaking Bad. The kids got to see, uh, you know, Dallas, Texas, which we actually ended up coming back to a tournament in a few weeks later which is a really cool city. Uh, if you guys get a chance to travel with your guys there, do it. It's awesome. Uh, and then going through all the stuff, like all the mountains as you're coming in uh, to Vegas is unbelievable. Like it's like, I had never seen the Hoover Dam and I had been to Vegas maybe six times prior. Flying, eh? Dri- Flying. You don't see yeah. it. Driving is different. I mean, like you, you're kind of like, oh, there it is or whatever, right? But- <laughs> Like to actually drive and see the scale of it and the red rock everywhere. And like, there's, I I don't know if you would know this, but like, there's a section before you get to Vegas where it's like, this is the last gas station before you get to Vegas. So if you break down between here and Vegas, good luck. You're in the desert and it's 118. So try not to die. Like, you know, there's, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff that it's like, wow, man, this is, real world planning that you've got to like factor in and take care of and all that. But uh, we, I mean, in terms of where we went, we Florida four times, uh, Atlanta three times. We were in North Carolina for a week. We did South Carolina. We did Virginia. We did Las Vegas. We were in Texas. Uh, we were in Pennsylvania. We had, we had a really good year in terms of travel. The kids got to cross through 31 different States and see and play in nine different States. So I would, Hang my hat on, I think I traveled more than any prep program in Canada this year. And I believe I'm going to do more the next season coming up. So it's fingers crossed. Terror prep. And you know, you know what's you know what's really funny is that as much as we love the game, and you know, us being able to learn all these X's and O's, these tendencies of players, these scouting and everything, how good does it feel to show kids? an experience or have them see a place that they have never thought in a million years that they'd be able to see before. So I'll tell you something. It's a bit of a tangent. I'll get back to your question. I'll tell you something that I feel Mm -hmm. is really interesting about all of this. We as coaches don't really know our players well enough for when they're being recruited to confidently speak about them. Mm. You're in a prep program and you travel with the kids frequently now you get to actually really see who these kids are like you know who flushes the toilet and who doesn't you know who cleans up after themselves you know who does dishes who does laundry like you get a real sense of who these kids are very quickly or or, i'm 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 gonna cut you real quick just adding on to what you're saying who even if i travel who is going to take it as a vacation or who is actually going to be able to keep their routine or try to find a new routine in a new environment? 100%. So part of my sales pitch now, when kids call me and like, hey, I'm interested in Terra Prep, blah, 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 blah. Part of my spiel is you're going to find out very quickly whether you want to do this or not. 
because professional basketball, and I'm sure, you know, being around the Ville, like you've, yep. you've met many professional basketball players, but mm-hmm. professional basketball is hard, right? Like you want to be the only North American person in a random city in Europe where they don't like you or where, you know, uh, you're expected to score 30 a game. And if you score 27, they're throwing you on a plane to go home at your cost or, uh, you know, you're over here, like you said, my routine back home was I would get shots between here and here, but there's no gym in this city. So I got to figure something else out. Or I only eat these kinds of foods because I'm very particular about my diet. But now I'm in Albania and they don't offer that at all. Story. And it's like you're going to find out very quickly who you are as a person, how resourceful you are, and if you can do this at a high level or not. Like, it's great to have the the tools, you know, have the size, have the speed, have the length, all those. It's great to have those. They're definitely needed. There is definitely a character portion that it's like, dude, are you hard as nails inside or are you Charmin? Because if you're Charmin, you might as well leave right now because Mm -hmm. dudes are going to sniff that out and eat your food. Yeah. But like I said, I, I I confidently can speak on a lot of my kids. When college coaches ask about somebody, I'm like, well, let me tell you, I'll give you this story about him or blah, blah, blah. Like it's, it's very easy to really start to see who's who we, you know, we had a, a kid who didn't play. We played IMG and we ended up losing by I think 11 and we were winning for 38 minutes of that game. And we IMG national national team. Yeah, with uh, big Olivier, they're they're a seven six kid and all yep. that. And you know, a lot of a lot of scouts were like, "Dude, why didn't you tell me your players were this good?" And I'm like, "I have been all year." And <laughs> you know, they 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 chalked it up to like, "Oh, this, this is uh, you know a, a great second place type deal and you know participation trophy." And I'm like, "I would have won this game, except one of my starters didn't play because he got caught stealing and I didn't play him." Right. Mm-hmm. So like you want to find out about character. Well, there it is. Right. Like, mm-hmm. like you, you very quickly mm. find out things about players when you're in another country that you're like, wow, that's interesting. Especially interesting. when you're traveling. Like our weeks were usually like we leave on Thursday, we come back on Monday, we're home until Thursday, and we're gone again. Kids basically get two days of sleep and we're on the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could I could live, I could, uh, I, every, you're talking about this and it's just like coming back to me. Like it was the same thing for me as well. You know, okay. like you, you travel so much and it's like, you know, sometimes hard to, in, I guess, think of it as a break, you know, it really is a job and you, those who love it, those who love it, you're going to find out real quick if you love basketball or if you kind of like it, it's a big a difference. Of, a lot of young kids see the things that come with being a baller you know attractive women hanging out in the culture music all that kind of stuff dressing a certain way etc but when it comes down to like are you putting in the work are you getting your shots are you lifting like we we lifted five days a week when we were home and as few as two days a week when we were not and there were guys just missing all the time and it's like, what am I going to do? Penalize you, not play you all the time? You're just not ready. And that's why, like, we had an A and a B team. That's why your team is losing and the other team is winning. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what's happening there. Like, 
the work, the input will usually have some sort of correlation with the output. And if you're not putting in the input, what are we talking about? Big time. You, you're coming on a vacation because we're going to Vegas. You're spending a bunch of your parents' money to go see parts of the world, but you're not really here to play basketball. And mm -hmm. it shuffles. It really does. Holy. Oh, that was a good tangent, man. Like, <laughs> I appreciate shifting to more um, tactical, you know, and this is why I wanted to get you on. You know, we obviously, you know, you leave, we leave pandemic, we get the chance to, um, we get the chance to ex execute on certain things. We execute on, you, you just talked about how um, the operations, everything that went around it, how you kind of got around, you know, making sure everything works. But now getting to the court, um, we wanted to talk today about, uh, uh, I, I wouldn't, is it force middle or is it more like shaving middle? I call it force. I force don't middle? Yeah, I mean, we could call it whatever you want. Force. The idea is that we're we're sending towards the nail from towards wherever. The nail. Yeah, from wherever. From yeah. So talk to me a little bit a bit a little bit about that. Like how did it come about? Was it something you've always done? Was it just something that maybe came out of the pandemic after talking with some people, shifted your mindset? Well, I mean, first of all, everybody plays sideline baseline. Mm -hmm. So the in my opinion, like I played it when I played back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. And same. <laughs> uh <laughs> You know, the, the idea or the premise is that the sideline and the baseline act like extra defenders. And I never felt that to be true. I also felt that if everybody plays it, then the best players are just getting lots and lots of reps against it and figuring out how to get better against it. So, uh, you know, when I coached, uh, we definitely played it at York. Didn't love it. Uh, did a little bit of it when I coached at Fleming. Didn't love it. Uh, I did some pro scouting for the Gungsheng Steelers, and I did some pro scouting for the Tampa Bay Titans. We're a little bit better at it, but at the pro level, it's, it, in my opinion, it's very much less team defense and very much more guard your it's man, who you're worth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, it's hard to have any kind of defensive system in place if that's what you're looking at doing when you're playing one-on-one. -on -one. Like, the bottom line is you can stay in front of your guy or you can't, and then any sort of switching kind of hurts you. So, um, I don't know. I fiddled with it a little bit in my mind. Uh, I watched lots and lots of videos over long periods of time. And uh, I watched some pack line stuff. And there's some things that are in pack that I like. But most of it overall is not for me. One thing I've always hated is being on the line, up the line, with your top hand up and your thumb down denied. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I've always, I've always actually always thought that was stupid. Just puts you out of position, closes you out off to have position. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing that I've always liked is is being able to support and prevent penetration. And right, like for me, the the real catalyst of this was I was at York, and in my second year, I was asked to chart paint touches, and there was one game it was like the second one that i did where it was like i'm gonna forget the exact numbers right but it was roughly there were 80 possessions of the game excuse me for us offensively and we didn't have a great game but we had paint touches on let's call it 21 of them yep 
And of those 21 paint touches, we scored like 75% of the time. And then on the 59 that we didn't have paint touches, we scored like 17, 18% of the time. So I'm like, all right, well, that is a massive difference. Does this hang true over a period of time? And then after charting six, seven, eight games, there was absolutely a correlation, both teams, both directions. I started pulling up other games on Synergy and going through it because, you know, I'm a nerd. That's what I do. And sure enough, it was like, dude, there's like a 30 to 40% difference in the amount you score if you get a paint touch. And Mm -hmm. that goes from, you know, 30% more to like 50% more if you get multiple paint touches. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, all right, well, the key to defense is paint touches. How do you prevent it? And it really comes back to supporting penetration. How do you support penetration? Well, you got to get in the gaps and you got to really take that away. So what do you give up when you start doing that? Well, you give up the long ball. How do you prevent that? Well, you got to rotate from other places. So, you know, uh, we've put in some things like we next on ball screens that are going towards the middle. Uh, We actually help off of the strong side corner uh, and. Uh, we we help off of the strong side corner and and actually just straight up peel switch that so the beaten ball defender ends up short closing that strong side corner and that strong side corner becomes the new defender on the ball so that we don't have to rotate from the low man on the other side of the floor so we're mm-hmm. we're shortening certain things but what I also find that we do is we're making offenses look at something that they don't understand mm-hmm. like. We get a lot of players like, wait, the rotation is supposed to come from there. What's happening? Why is why is this the case? Or you get a lot of guys like, let's say it's a, a strong side drive. And instead of stunting or, or, you know, volleyball digging from that strong side corner and trying to recover, we're full out peel switching. And then they end up running into the chest and getting a charge or they make that outside pass. But they're beating ball defenders coming from behind and stealing the ball. And it's just like we're getting a lot of extra possessions because of mm-hmm. it. And mm-hmm. the the problem with it is to do it very well, you have to be active and like like very active. Like guys have got to be prepared to, to run into the next closeout, et cetera. Uh, and you've got to also close at the right angle all the time because a lot of guys, for some reason, for years have been playing sideline, baseline. So you'll see a lot of guys close the wrong way and then shift their feet and try and send them back to the middle or whatever. And they'll get blown by because they're, you know, they're fooling around with their feet at that point. But when we're firing, I mean, we, this was the first year I ever won a live period event. Uh, And then we won the tournament following that. So we won the Carolina live this year during the live period. And then the next week we won um, an ATL, uh, one of the on the radar events. And then the weekend after that, we went three and Mm -hmm. one. So like we started our AAU season eleven and one, and uh, I think it has everything to do with the guys buying into this and really playing it. Yeah, quite. yeah. yeah. And the, the interesting thing is, is that like like so the first game that we played it with AAU this year, we won fifty one fifteen, and of those fifteen points that that other team scored, they had eight free throws, so they only had three field goals, right? A three and mm-hmm. two teams. Mm-hmm. And, the three was very much like an end of the quarter, end of the half heave. Good yeah. luck. Yeah. So really they scored one field goal in each half. And it's like, it's hard to not be fired up as a team when you're keeping a team 
that low in terms of this. And like, if you looked at these guys, I mean, they weren't poop suit. They could, they were decent guys in terms of how they could play. They just couldn't figure out where we were coming from. And it just led to all these turnovers and bust outs and bad contested mid-range shots, long rebound, out we go. And, you know, we, you get 11, 12 dunks in a game. Now you're fired up and you're like, coach, this yeah. works, right? Like, yeah. this works. Yeah. So, so what, so in teaching this defense, so a couple of things, like, was it hard to get the buy-in from the players? Because obviously a lot of them first started, it's like, you know, I'm not forcing to the middle. Like a lot of them probably have been taught, you know, send it to the sideline. Don't let it in the paint, all that stuff. I, you know? Was it hard? I have never really found buy-in very difficult. Mm. I find execution sometimes difficult, but I think I'm, I mean, the majority of my adult life, I've been a salesperson. So mm. uh, I'd like to think I'm decent with my words. And a lot of, there's a lot of this. Hey, everything you've taught before, for me, that's wrong. It doesn't mean it's wrong overall, but it's wrong for me. Now, you've been doing things a certain way for X amount of time, so I understand doing it my way is going to take some time, but this works better. You will see, and if it doesn't, we will review and change. So kids are like, mm, okay, I like that. But it's also like, think of all the coaching that you've had in your life so far to this point. How much do you trust those people in what they've been saying? And the unfortunate truth is, is that most youth coaches are regurgitating things that they've heard from other people and are not very good at actually understanding why are we doing this? So when you come in and you're able to provide a reason like, well, we do this because, you know, uh, the secondary shot is going to come from a contested three-point shooter who doesn't shoot very well. Whereas in the other, it's going to be a drop-off for a big who's smashing it in front of the rim, which one is a higher percentage shot? When you can actually articulate the differences, kids are like, no, nah, dude, that makes perfect sense. I'm going to try it, coach. So I don't, I don't really feel that I've ever had a lot of buy-in issues. I, I think there's definitely execution issues because it's like, I've trained this my whole life, coach. Like, what mm -hmm. do you want? You know, like, how am I supposed to be able to get there and do that? So, so what would you say would be the main teaching points of, uh, of this defense? Uh, so we get over everything, right? Uh, we, we employ the Carlton rule. Never, ever, 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 ever get hit by a screen. So uh, we're, we're teaching our guys to get over, get back in front. Uh, we, we next. So uh, if you get over a screen, and the defender one pass away is supporting you, he'd be like roughly rim line. Mm -hmm. If he uh, has now got the ball, and then the low man on the far side steps up to his, the beaten ball the defender is going next to the, to the corner. That one's tricky in terms of teaching. Uh, in terms of not getting hit by the screen, that one's tricky in terms of teaching because a lot of kids, for some reason, want to bully into a screen. And then... Yeah to get over or they're taught the hook where they're inside hand inside leg and they're trying to pull, yeah. pull themselves over and i i don't know who ever like implemented this to begin with but it's just yeah it's, it's ridiculous footwork to me mm -hmm. uh so we, we changed the footwork to stepping on a clock and actually getting your nose in the person's back and then sprinting to get back in front of them uh and 
what else would be in there that's tricky? Um, peel switching is not tricky where you're helping off the strong side corner, but kids actually tend to like that one. Uh, I mm-hmm. think I think the biggest one out of anything is the short close. So we we really believe, like I said, that pain touches are what are what win games. Well, we don't want to get one or two rotations into good defense, and then you end up with a ten foot close. And you're running and jumping. You're the first one off the floor, and you blow by that guy. And now they're playing five on four, and it's like, well, we play good defense until that happened, and now they're just gonna have an advantage. So we short close everything all the way around, even if it's a good shooter. Like you got to make four or five before we do anything different against you, and mm-hmm. becomes interesting because sometimes kids are gonna look at you like, coach, that's three. Like, do we? Switch yeah, no. yo. Yes. No, we're going to stick with I mean, this This was a uh, on run it back. This was a common theme that I would ask. At what point do you throw the audible? Yes. Right? Like, do you make the your guy, adjustments? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. That, that, that shoots 18% on the season just made five threes. Do I have to play them differently? Yeah, probably. Or am I going to accept that he's going to have a game and we let him beat us? That's, I mean, this is coaching, right? At the end of the day, like, this is what we need to sit down, have a drink with a a friend of yours, and really, like, how long would you do this? Or, like, you know, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things are, they're hard to deal with in the moment, and they can make or break trust with your players. But that being said, it's like, you've got to figure out what you're comfortable with. We, It's, that's the, and that's the essence, right? Because, like, you heard me talk about it a little bit with you, just, like, getting them to buy in, like have them understand that, yes, this is what we're doing. And yes, it is possible for somebody who we don't think is a good shooter for them to hit three to start the game. Right. But ultimately it's like, okay, what what am I willing to give up? Contested over the span of a game yeah. or layups at the rim. So by you just being able to get the players to buy into that, it's really like an understanding of one, hey, then there's there's anomalies. Certain times certain things happen, right? But two, also, there's also this law that chances are that a bad shooter, if they start off and make three by He's the end of the game. Hmm? Yeah. I said he'll trend towards that mean over time. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, this this brings about a um much larger discussion like so yeah. i talk to players about this all the time basketball shots are not actually worth two and three points okay like they are in the moment obviously but a basketball shot is actually worth what that player's points per possession are over a period of time mm-hmm. so like if you shoot 1.4 points per possession from the field on a two and i shoot 0.9 even though I just made three baskets in a row, our team is actually losing points because I'm shooting the ball more than you are, right? So the difference there is 0.5 points per possession, which may not seem like a lot, but if we're making that decision over the course of 100 possessions, that's actually 50 points fewer that our team is going to score. And people don't understand the math on that. And don't agree with it because they're like, no, that's nonsense. That shot is actually worth two points. And it's like, yes, in the moment it is, you are correct. But there's 
a basketball game is a long period of time Mm -hmm. where the math actually tends to support what you think. Are there anomalies? Yes. Are they as common as you think they are? No, not really. It's like a lot of people don't know this, but if you go and you look at the NBA averages over the past 50 years, Mm -hmm. the NBA has had 87 to 89 possessions every year for the past 50 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The number hasn't changed. And mm-hmm. they're scoring 30 to 40 points more per, per game in the past, you know, five, eight years than they were in the late 80s and the 90s. And it's like you can attribute that to, oh, some people shoot better percentages, et cetera. Sure. You could also attribute that to people are taking better shots. Mm-hmm. Right? Like yeah. the, the people who have higher points per possessions are getting to shoot the ball more and we're shooting less contested shots than we were back then because you know lots of factors we don't have hand checking where yep, the rules have changed yep. yeah for sure mm-hmm. but in addition to that we've decided that like we're probably going to have a hierarchy of shots where it's like this is the best shot the highest points per possession we're going to move down that spectrum and it doesn't mean you know i'm not going to bring up the mid-range debate but it, it doesn't mean that the shots that are lower on that spectrum are bad shots it means that you're going to try and get the better shots first before you settle for the other shots later on. That's all it right. means. Really. Right. And if right. you can teach that to youth, it will really help your points per possession as a team overall over the course of time because everyone starts working towards the same goal. And the, the last thing that I wanted to say about this, like we were talking about, when do you throw the audible and go away from what your scout was? versus like what's actually happening i think that has everything to do with what length of time you spent with that team Mm -hmm. because players that have played for you for a longer period of time who understand the discussion that we're talking about about like hey man over the course of time that guy hitting three doesn't actually hurt us he's gonna go boom and all his boys are yeah, overvalue shit in the immediate moment, but at the end of the game, he's gonna hold an L and you're gonna hold a W and we're gonna go home. Kids that have spent time with you and have seen that happen over a long period of time are now like, All right, I'm gonna trust coach more. The leash is longer. Whereas kids that are new to your team, you might have to audible earlier in order even if it's away from what you believe in, in order to preserve that trust. Yeah. You might even be like, hey, man, we're going to shift this coverage. I don't agree with it, but I'm going to do it for your sake so you can see. And then, you know, you film it and you go back to it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when... And we're just talking about, like... I think this subject we were just talking about is something that I hold very dear to my heart because I kind of find like um, coaches overreact a lot, in my opinion, too quickly, because as the game goes on, there's certain pressures that come on, right? Because if you kind of see like a whole game as a glass of water, as the game's winding down, there's less and less water in this game, right? So it gets closer to the end. And I kind of find like a lot of situations, coaches overreact. And you're talking about the types of pressures that certain players have that get bigger and bigger as the game goes on. 
it could really make or break. And I don't think you necessarily need to switch everything. A lot of time it's just the team that can hold its ground and trust on the fundamentals that they have or the basics that they have on their scout. In my opinion, that makes a difference. I'll give you an example. If a non-shooter, right, has the ball in his hand with two seconds of the shot clock, what do they have to do? Shoot it, right? Well, there was actually no pressure on that shot for them to have to make it. So whether it goes in or not, it doesn't necessarily, um, it doesn't necessarily define, per, quote unquote, the quality of the shot or how impactful that three is. There was no pressure. The decisions was already pre-made for the person. A non-shooter versus a um, a good a good shooter based on numbers. Obviously, at the beginning of the game, you'll notice that those who are specifically not necessarily shooters, what they'll do at the beginning of the game, most of the time, they'll be more willing to shoot it. But as the game goes on, you start seeing the fourth quarter. Players are going to go back. <laughs> players are going to go back to what it is that their strengths are because at the end of the day, your confidence and the pressure and the pressures, the best way for you to deal with it is to go back to what your strengths are. I would agree with that. Interestingly enough, this, this example makes me think of two foul, three foul, four foul participation. And it, it's funny because you, you prefaced the whole discussion by coaches tend to overreact. Mm -hmm. If you have a real fall off between your first five players and your next three, and you have a player that has two quick fouls, what is the real opportunity cost of taking that player off the floor and replacing him with somebody who's poop? Right? Mm -hmm. So this, this actually ties into the conversation of throwing audibles and not or whatever. So for me, I'd rather get every minute out of that better player, regardless of how many fouls he has, especially at the youth level. Like I'd let him play with four in the first half. I don't care if he fouls out. That mistake was technically on him, but he's more valuable being on the floor. Mm. The contrary argument is he's more valuable being on the floor later in the game. And which which is what you're saying, like, hey, a non-shooter's got two seconds later in the game and he he there's no real pressure on him. He's got to shoot the ball, et cetera. It's outside of his traits. You know, Mr. Mank, who cares really at that point? He had to mm. well. The interesting thing to me is, is that like, I think every second of the game is equally important. I don't actually think that mm. the end of the game is more important than the rest. Like it's, we often talk about like, oh, this player blew a layup in the last 60 seconds. And it's like, yeah, but we missed six of them in the first quarter. How are we going to ignore that part? Like that's 12 points. Right. right? And it like, I get that people don't agree with me. I get that people have a different point of view, but like, two foul participation, three foul participation, all that kind of stuff. I'd rather have that better player be on the floor for as long as possible, influencing the game the way that they do, as opposed to sitting them on the bench, preserving fouls for this subjective amount of time at the end that is supposedly more important than the time of them being on the floor right now. Because it's like, how much is that subjective amount of time? Is it four minutes? Okay, if it's the last four minutes of the game are the most important and we want him to be on for the, the last four minutes, 
the four minutes that he's not playing right now, how negative can that six player, seven player, eighth player make the game in those four minutes right now compared to the four minutes at the end of the game? Because there are some kids that can very negatively influence the game mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> in four yep. minutes. And, and, you know, it's not that talk bad about anybody or whatever, but like it can go very bad very quickly, just like it can go, you know, the way that it's supposed to go, having that right person on the floor. So it's interesting to me. I don't know why, but it makes me think of that discussion where, you know, like every minute of the game is just important as another. And in doing so, when to throw that audible or when to make changes, et cetera, they're really coaches decisions and, the the better off your team will always be will be understanding that these decisions are subjective and having trust in your leader which ultimately comes back to what you were saying of you know coaches overreact well my my opinion on coaching is always this coaches lose games players win games all the credit goes to players all the negative goes to coaches and if you don't have a coach who thinks that way Players are never going to fully trust you and they're never going to be fully accountable to you because what you're actually asking them to do in the scenario that we're talking about is trust what I've designed. I think it's right. And if Mm -hmm. it's wrong, then the only person who should have responsibility is me, not you. You did what you were asked to do. And if you're Mm -hmm. the kind of person who at the end of the game is like, well, you know, this guy missed that layup and blah, 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 blah. That guy's going to be like, hold the." what about the five force middles coach that uh, yeah from the right position and dude's got a layup that's your system isn't it Mm -hmm. you've got to be big enough to to take that responsibility and not overreact like you were saying oh man menelik i appreciate you i'm gonna get into quick um uh rapid fire questions man for Uh you I do um, on these. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Um, the most important skill in the game, in your opinion, Shooting. right now. Shooting. Shooting. By far? Why? 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 Uh, there's an old formula. I forget who designed it. 40% of winning is shooting, 30% is passing, and then everything else is attributed to the last 30%. I believe it's 20% rebounding, and then the other 10% are the little incrementals. I read that a long time ago. It made a lot of sense to me, and I have now found in the past five years that I think most people can evaluate. Most people want the biggest, strongest, best vertical leap, fastest runner, mm-hmm. his arms, all of that. And it's like, dude, that guy is bad at basketball. I don't know how you don't see it. And they're like, well, potential, potential, potential. Well, like, you know, I'm, I'm going to use a very specific player. Did Bruno Caboclo ever pan out for the Raptors? Mm-hmm. That, that, that was, two years, you know, like, and I'm, I'm sorry to mention your name specifically, but I think of him all the time. He was a good player who was placed in an unfortunate situation. The bar was here. He wasn't there yet. And they kept saying, until you're there, we're not going to play you. We're going to develop you, et cetera. And he ended up having expectations on him that were unfair. Everybody looking at him negatively ultimately forced him out. And all he really did to have those expectations put on him was be tall and have long arms. Mm -hmm. There are certain players that are better at this, that are working harder at this. And that is most reflective, I feel, in shooting the basketball. 
Yeah. If you're not out there getting your vitamins, as they say, taking, you know, 75, 100 makes every single day. I don't really think you want this. I don't think it's it's for you. Mm-hmm. Um, val, val, the number one value that you want your team culture to have. Oh, man, I guess accountability. I'm not a big culture guy at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really negative culture will kill your team. Other than that, I don't really like to harp on, spend a lot of time, but I really do believe in accountability, myself included. I tell players all the time, call me out on it then. Like, if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. Let's get this fixed. Let's figure it out. And, like, we run we run a lot of NBA and pro sets just from a lot of time watching Synergy. It's tr- what I try to implement, et cetera. But I tell my guys all the time, if you have a layup, screw my play. Go take your layup. But be right. Don't be wrong. Like, if you're going to supersede what we're doing as a team, you better be right. Mm-hmm. Hardest thing about starting a prep school. Because it's not for everybody. <laughs> um, probably two things, stress and money, right? Like you, it, it's really difficult to uh, put together a budget that really works. This is very expensive to do. And a lot of people, like, I'm, I don't understand really at all where kids that are, you know, five, seven, can't make their high school team think they deserve a 100% scholarship. Like, I just... Where have we gone that we've gotten to this point? It's like, listen, mm-hmm. man, I appreciate that this is expensive. I do. But traveling to 31 states is expensive as well. And I'm not paying that out of my own pocket. When I'm doing 20-hour drives, that gas money is going to come from you guys. That's that's what happens. When you know we're playing in tournaments that you would never have. like, Dude, when I was in high school, we played like 14 games in a season. We played 55 for one team this year. I had two kids score a thousand points this season. That's a whole career in most high school. I had two kids mm-hmm. in one season. And it's like, you know, you're going to come to me and be like, oh, well, I don't know about money. I think I deserve more of a scholarship and all this. And I'm like, maybe you do, but like, where's that money going to come from? And then the stress related with having those conversations all the time, right? Like it just, hey man, you're not where you think you are. And I'm sorry to be the person to tell you that, but like, that's what it is. And if you want to be where you like, where you want to be, it, it that doesn't make sense. If you want to be where you think you actually are, you require a lot more work than what you're putting in currently. Mm-hmm. And, and if you do that work, you also have to be comfortable with the fact that you might not actually get to that point. 100%. That's a real one that, <clears throat> that's a real one that people don't ever talk about. Like, Hey yeah. man, all of high school is roughly 1,200 days. It's a little bit more, right? Like four years, 365, it's, call it 1,400 days in there. If you were one person, if Olivier worked every single day, did what he was supposed to do, get all his shots, blah, 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 and I worked 60% of that time, that 40% that I'm not doing, right, reflects on what are 1440s, 40, 64, 640 days that I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I can never get that back. Never. Mm-hmm. Like that graph is an exponential difference among you and I, right? Like over time. For, mm-hmm. Yeah, forget it. Like I'm not in the same place that you are. I can never make it up unless you stop working and I put in 640 days in a row to catch up. And then we might not still be in the same place at that point because we're both bigger, stronger, older. So maybe you just matured faster. So you have to be comfortable with when you're doing this that if you put in the work, you might still not be where you want to be. So stress, man, stress and money. They're the two biggest ones. 
as a as a coach, last one, as a coach, what do you want your players to remember you by? The the two cliches. Uh, listening is a skill; it can be developed, and the way that you do anything is the way that you do everything. That's me in a nutshell. I say them all the time, right? Like when you walk into a store, you're perceived a certain way. When you walk into the movie theater, you're perceived a certain way. So you have to be, I mean, like, like, let's be frank, the vast majority of us who play this game are people of color and we're big. So the perception of us in everyday society is not the same as it is for everybody else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we go play pro ball in Asia, the rules are going to be different. The way the perception is going to be different, et cetera. So the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Do you say please and thank you? Do you clean up after yourself? Do you, you know, dress in a certain way to, to manage the way people perceive you? Or if you don't, do you recognize that they perceive you in a certain way? And do you diminish their fears by, you know, being warm and receptive and listening? I mean, I can't tell you how irritated I get. Like I ask one question, it's very specific. And the answer is something totally like, do you like A or B? blue and you're like what (laughs) like you're not paying attention so those would very much be the two that i hope to be remembered by holy manlik fernandez i appreciate so much where can people find you on uh, social media uh so terror underscore b-ball is me that's uh twitter and instagram and then terror underscore prep is the school that's twitter and instagram as well Olivia, thanks, man. I I really appreciate you. It's awesome to be here. I appreciate you. And hopefully we get to run it back on the run it back, you know? So do that. I love that. All right. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you for tuning in this week. Make sure to rate or add a review if you enjoyed. Thank you to Malik Fernandez for being our guest this week. Um, Thank you to him for being able to share and teaching us more about his philosophies on this forced middle defense. Make sure to send him a a shout out on social media. Um, As for me, you could always connect with me on every social platform at Cocho365. And also make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel uh, for weekly video breakdowns and more. Every week, I love to say this. Thank you to the followers and the listeners. Uh, None of this would be possible without you. This is your host, Coach O. And this week's quote is from Maya Angelou. There's always an opportunity for you to be the rainbow in someone's cloud. Have a great week and see you all next week on the Project 365 podcast.